John chapter 1, we'll be looking through 1 through 14. Um, the central, uh, uh, one of the central beliefs of Christianity is the incarnation, meaning that uh, Jesus Christ, the, the, God, the God-man, he came into human history and lived as a man. And he lived uh, as, as born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life. And uh, he would be the second person of the Trinity. Um, he's the son of the Father. The Father loves his son, and he wants to display his love for the son by what his son accomplishes for us. So this is a, a central belief. And so last week, um, Jake did an excellent job uh, showing us the promise that uh, the people that waited for Christ to come, they live anticipating and waiting uh, that the incarnation would happen. And so for hundreds and hundreds of years, you have these people who are waiting for Christ to come, waiting for Christ to show up. And that is what their life is for. And so we look at that now and we know that he's going to come again, right? Christ is going to come again. And so we live now waiting uh, for this second coming, for for him to appear and, and, and take his bride, take his church. And so we live for that as the same way that they, they live for it as well. And so what we'll see here, we'll just jump into the text. And we're going to see why it was so important uh, that Christ did come, that Christ did, uh, as the scriptures say, uh, dwell among us. Look in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Let's go. Every time we want to jump into a book, I want to explain to you why um, it why it was written and who it was written to. John's gospel, we've been going through Luke's gospel um, here on Sunday mornings, and that's what, typically what we do uh, here in Integrity. We go through books of the Bible, and we do verse by verse, and uh, this is a little different. We're doing a, a small little series, but what I like to do when I explain a, 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 a portion of Scripture to you, I like to tell you why it was written, uh, because context will help us understand uh, the meaning of passages. And the danger that I think people find in when we read Scripture is we take Scripture and we make it something that it's not when we take it out of context, we take it out of the meaning. And so John is writing this book to a specific audience, all right? And, and here's, here's what we see in, in Scripture. When you begin to see why things were written the way that they were and, and the, to who they were written to, you really begin to see the heart of God in that. You begin to see that God uh, really wants us to think like him, which is to think like a missionary. You, you begin to see God's heart for the missions because he lays out, for instance, there's four different Gospels. You ever thought about why there are four different Gospels? Do you think that God just wanted to be cued and have repeat the story over and over again? Or was there a reason why there's four different Gospels? Well, there's four different Gospels because God wants to show us how he communicates the Gospel message, the message of his beautiful, beloved son, to four really different groups of people, multiple different groups of people. And so this is what you begin to see. So, for instance, let me just give you an example of that. The, the Bible, the New Testament, was written in, in two different languages, or w- one different language. Uh, one, one language, there it is. One language. <laughs> it was written in um, Koine Greek. And there's classic Greek, which 
could have been used to write, to write the New Testament in, but it was written in Koine Greek because Koine Greek was the common language that your, the blue-collar guy could understand, your plumber could understand, your just, just regular citizen could pick up and read and understand the gospel. He didn't choose the high and lofty language of the day. He didn't choose the one that all of the wealthy people would know. He chose the simple language where we would come and anyone could come and they would hear um, the gospel message. And so that's just an example of the missional heart of God, the, the way that scripture was even written so that any person could grab it and know it and understand it. And not only that, but he takes uh, this beautiful message uh, of the gospel of Christ coming into the world and living as a man and living a perfect sinless life. And he does this to multiple different audiences. And so what he does is he brings different stories to play. Like, for instance, when he writes um, to uh, the gospel of Matthew, when scripture's written about uh, in Matthew, what he does is he writes to uh, the Jews. Uh, the, the whole book of Matthew is written to the Jewish people. And so what he doesn't do is he doesn't go into all the details of what a Jew was because they would know. They would know, right? But what he does is he, he does mention... Um, the law of Moses. He bre- breaks down the law of Moses. How it, 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 There's a new covenant. There's a new era that's happening through Christ. And so he does the same thing with Mark. Mark was written to the, the Romans. And so he often explains Jewish words that the Romans wouldn't understand so that they can understand the gospel even, even more. And so then you have Luke. He wrote it to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And so he's proven an excellent work. And so when Luke gets into a story of someone being healed, he's a doctor. And so when he talks about a person being healed, he spends a great deal of time uh, explaining this is a miracle of God. There's no way that science could explain this. And then you have John. John's gospel, he writes to Jews and Greeks. And so John, what he does in John's gospel is he's literally bringing, listen to this, two different cultures together. And, And so we really begin to see the missional heart of God here and even how he explains Christ coming into the world. Now this is very key that we understand that God has a mission heart for all nations when we begin to see even how he shows and displays the incarnation in the gospel of John. If you notice what John does is right at the beginning of the passage he says, in the beginning, which is a, we'll get into that in just a second. He says, was the what? Was the word. It was the word. Um, it, it says, and the word was with God, and the word was what? God. So the, the, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. By the way, Jehovah's Witness will always take this text, and when they read the Bible to you, their Bible to you, they will often say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. Because they do not believe in the incarnate Christ. They believe that, um, that Jesus, uh, they believe that, that Michael, the archangel, would become man, not Jesus. They believe that Jesus became man. They believe that Michael, the archangel, became man. Oops, right? Because how, how do you deal with the rest of the passage if that's true, right? How do you really interpret John's gospel through that lens? You don't, all right? You don't. It ends up being a cult, right? 
That's what it is, right? And so, John says that the word was God, meaning, and, and if you look in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know that the word is not just an it, it's a person. It's a who, and the man is Jesus Christ. So the word is God. And then this is what we see here. The word actually means logos. It's the Greek word for word. Word, right? In Hebrew culture, this is who he's talking to. Remember, he's speaking to Jews and he's speaking to Greeks, all right? And to the Hebrews, to the Jewish people, this is what, how they understood what John is saying when he says word. Their idea of the word is paramount to them. The word meant so much to the Hebrews people because here's what they believed. As they look into um, the Old Testament and this is the way that they understood God was through those lenses because they were not yet in the new covenant. They would look at Jesus or look at God as uh, the word as paramount that this is the way that God performs his action was through his word. This is how God operates, was through his word. His word is the most important thing. So if you look in like Genesis 1-1, what do you see? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you look at the rest of the passage. How did he make things? How did he build? How did he create? How did he do all these things? Did he just do it with his hands? Did he just uh, just go to the Home Depot and get all these supplies? No, it says that he spoke the world into existence. He spoke these things. And this is how God operates was through his Voice that his word was paramount. So the, when the Hebrews, when they hear that in the beginning was the word, this is what they're thinking. This is on their minds. This is what's happening. And if you even look in, in Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, this is a beautiful, beautiful text. For as the rain and the snow came down from heaven, and do not return but water in the earth making it uh, bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall, what's the word? My word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I Send it. See, God's word to the Hebrews, which John is communicating this gospel message to, they believe that the word is how things got done. This is how God did things, was he spoke. They looked at the prophets. They saw the same thing in the prophets. God accomplishes things through these mouthpieces that he puts in place, and they speak, and that's how things get Done. And so, God acted in the world. It was through his word. And so when John is communicating to the Hebrews, he's like, this is how God is going to get things done. Following that? Okay, so now he's bringing this culture in, this Hebrew people who understood the word this way. And this is what he does with these, with these Greeks. He explains the same word. He says it's the logos. John 
who had already witnessed Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and now he's beginning to see this whole group of people called the Greeks, who, by the way, outnumbered the um, Hebrews a million to one. So immediately when John begins to see the resurrected Christ, he begins to think like Jesus and begins to have a heart for the nations. And so John, seeing Jesus, he thinks this way and he, he presents this word meaning logos. And the Greeks knew this word because of their deep passion for philosophy. Now, I went uh, to a private school growing up, but it wasn't because... Um, my parents necessarily liked private school. They put me in a private school because I had trouble learning. And so smaller classrooms allowed for a kid, you know, with multiple attention problems, um, put me in a smaller room. And so they thought that was a good idea. And I never, to be honest with you, I, going through school, um, so I can't blame public school for this uh, or private school, I, I did not read a book from start to finish until I got into college, all right? Um, I, mean, I, I mean, I read um, the Cliff Notes uh, a lot, and I, I, li- I watched movies if there was a movie about a book that I was reading, and I would do a report on the movie. Um, oftentimes, you know, you'll get the names wrong because they change them in the movies. Um, learned that the hard way. Um, but I got into college, and I was like, okay, you know, I, I do feel like the Lord you know, has placed in my heart a desire to do ministry, and I'm going to pursue that with all the strength that I have, and so I, I better read a book. And um, I did. I read a couple books. And, um, and one of the books, and this is the irony of this, because I studied Greek philosophy. And for someone who does, has never read a book, um, that's probably not a good idea, honestly. I, that's, that's a bad idea. And it's like learning how to drive um, by, you know, getting a stick shift and getting half drunk and getting on the freeway. And that, that's what I did. And so I got, um, one of the books that I read was um, On Nature, um, by Heraclitus. Everybody, I mean, that's if we're going to have a third son, that's what we're going to name him. Um, and so he has influence over all these other guys, like uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Ever heard of them? Yep, kind of a big deal. Um, he influenced them. And, and, and what you begin to see, like one of the famous quotes I would say from this book would be, you can never put your foot into the same river twice. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? Okay, fine. You're fine. You haven't missed a ton. Um, but it, what he's saying is this world is in flux. And this, by the way, is how the Greeks understood this. This is how they would have known what this writing was. The, the Greeks that John is talking to read the same book that I did my first year in college, okay? They had this understanding of, of the Logos. This is their understanding. That you can never step into the same water twice. Everything was in movement. The world was always constantly changing. There was never any stability. So they saw the problem of sin right there. Do we see that a lot in our own culture? Do we see that, that there's nothing that seems stable? There's nothing that's new under the sun? Our culture is constantly changing. We can't keep up with all the new technologies, the, the new the new. Um, uh, philosophies that are coming out, the way that people think, it's changing constantly. Um, we would even say that our, our 
our understanding of marriage is different than it was 50 years ago in our own culture. And we look at 50 years from now and what that's going to be like that scares us. It's always in changing. It's always, nothing seems stable. And so the Greeks have this understanding that um, we need something that is stable. We need an unmoved mover. We need something that doesn't change that is a constant and then they would have this understanding even in, in what Plato and some of these guys did they um, they had this understanding that there needed to be a standard and so like guys like Plato came up with this idea of a philosopher king that this guy would be the standard of all things that he would be the word he would be the logos and so the Greeks idolize this idea of philosophy that in order for you to truly be enlightened, you must know all things. And you must be an expert in philosophy. You must be an expert in logos and logic. And so when he communicates the gospel to these, um, to these to this Hebrew audience, they understood that God's word was an action. But when he does it to the Greeks... He's like, yep, that thing that you long for, that's going to be this unmoved mover in a crazy, always, constantly changing world. That standard that you want to see, that standard that you desperately want to know, but you just can't because you're human. Yeah, yeah, that thing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us this is your standard this is what you long for this is what you look for this is your unmoved mover in this crazy constantly changing world this is who you look to this is something that will never change and so, he says that this word has always been. You say, well, I thought we celebrate Christmas because isn't that the beginning of Jesus? Isn't that when Jesus started his career, right? No. Because he's saying, Jesus, the word, if it became flesh and dwelt among us, he says it's in the beginning. You notice the parallel between John 1 1 and Genesis 1 1 both start with the phrase in the beginning. What does, John, what does Genesis 1 1 say? In the beginning, what? God. God. He says, and then John 1 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. So he's saying, listen, this Christ was there. In the beginning, God. That's the Christ. That's the God-man. That's the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. He has always been. It's not just the beginning. It's just when he became, when he became Christ. That's why we celebrate Christmas is the incarnation when he became flesh. He's always been at the beginning. He's always been. One of my favorite, uh, well, I'll just get into a couple. Of, look, look, look at Proverbs 8, 27-30. When he established the heavens, I was, what's the word? There, verse 29, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was beside him. What's he talking about? Christ. Christ. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. This is one of my favorite 
passages of all of Scripture. He is the image, which literally means the exact imprint of his nature, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were what? They were created. So Christ created all things. Jesus Christ, who died on a cross, created all things. I want you to wrap your mind around this concept. The very cross that Christ was crucified on, he created that cross. Right? The, the very, every animal that he ever had ridden on, he created those, every scoffer that scoffed and mocked his name and his purpose, he put in place. He created and he molded with his own hands that they would one day crucify. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He held up the very cross that, that he was crucified to. He was the one who held that up. We look at crazy scientific things like how do molecules work, and he holds all things together. He holds all things together. He's the one who does it. He's the one who does it. Christ is the creator. He has always been. Verse 3, it says this. All things were made through him. Without him, was nothing, not anything was made that was made. Let's look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus is continually, or John rather, is continually showing us this parallel between Genesis. When you see in Genesis, you see this parallel between light and darkness. That God, through his what? His word. He speaks light into existence um, because the world was dark. And he spoke light. And so he's saying that in Christ... There is light. And he's showing us here a couple of things. And this is, by the way, um, you'll see throughout John's gospel and even in John, um, or First uh, John, Second John, Third John, you see this motif really of him explaining God as light. This is one of the words that is used to describe God, that he is light. And so this is a timeless understanding about, about who God is. And so he's saying that the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. But look, what he, look at who he's talking about here. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. This is John the, the baptizer. He came as a witness to bear about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and that the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So who's, 
is John talking about? He's talking about John the baptizer, that people thought that he was Christ, and he was like, nope, I, I'm not even worthy to even, uh, you know, touch this guy's sandal. I, I, can't even, I can't even bend over and touch this guy's sandal. Jesus is way, way more important than me. I'm nobody. I'm a voice that's cried out in the wilderness. I'm God's mouthpiece. This is who you need to look to. This is who you need to worship. And this is, this is amazing that this has even come from John, who was very popular at that time, that many people would flock to hear him call them out, and they would repent of sin, and they would uh, follow through with believer's baptism. But he points his attention to the light, which is Jesus. And then he even says he came to his own, but his own didn't, didn't know him. He's talking about the Jews, that the Jews rejected Christ. This is why John the baptizer, his famous message was, you brood of vipers, you children of Satan. He's saying, listen, the light was literally an annoyance to them. But why didn't it say that, because it seems like in verse 9, it says the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. But why then did the Jews reject him? Because it seems like in verse 9, if we look at verse 9, we say, you know, it, it seems like everyone at this point would just become a Christian. That every single person in the world is going to bow down and worship Jesus. If the true light comes to everyone, then, then why don't we all believe? Why do we even have to evangelize if that's the case? Why do I have to go and share about Jesus if everyone is going to believe? We don't believe that. That's universalism. We don't believe that everyone in the universe is going to worship uh, Yahweh through Jesus Christ. We don't believe that, certainly. We don't see that around us. So what in the world does verse 9 mean? Here's what it means. What he's saying is there's a light that is going to beam down in the faces of the dark world and that there will be some who love that light and there will be some who reject that light. But that light has been exposed to everyone, so we are without excuse. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their uprighteousness suppress the truth. Have you ever seen that happen? People suppress the truth. They don't want to deal with who God is. They don't want to deal with the person and work of, of Jesus for what can be known about God is, what does it say? It's plain to them, right? Plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without, what's the word? Excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. So what you have here is a 
exchange instead of looking to the beautiful Savior, the creator of all things, they look to themselves and they look to the things that he's created but not the creator himself. We see this. This is a perfect time of year to talk about this, is it not? People worshiping created things but not the creator. I mean, Black Friday, anybody? Right? You all right? Black Friday? I mean, there's a Walmart video of that Walmart right across the street where they, like, lay out products. And people, I have never, there were, like, kids, like, like four-year-olds there getting trampled on for, like, plasmas. I'm like, come on. Or, oh, they're not plasmas anymore, but what do they call now? LHD or something. Yeah, LSD. Um, <laughs> LSD. Kids are going for LSD now um, at Walmart. And, and you, look at, you look at this and you think, God has created so many things for us so that we could enjoy them so that we could look and say, what a wonderful God that we have. He give, through his common grace, he gives us all these things. This is why, I mean, how many yogurt places do we have in Greenville now? I don't even know. But when I take my son to go get yogurt and he asks, you know, Dad, why is it so good that when I mix these types of flavors, when I take the cake batter, yogurt, and I put, you know, cookie dough in it, and I mix it up, and I put, you know, this, this marshmallow thing that they have that squirts marshmallows out, and you pour that on, and he enjoys that, and he says, why is that so good? What I want to do is teach him, God makes those flavors and those combinations so good because he wants you to know that his love for you is grand and great, and you should probably worship him. Because he's the one who created these things, right? Isn't he a good God? He's created this wonderful flavor that he's designed. That's why you like the color uh, light blue, you know? That's why you like that color. Because God's showing his beautiful, wonderful design. That's why he loves you. He creates this color. And dark blue is just, that's the devil, and you know that. Um, but so what we have here is, is God showing his beautiful, grand display of his love. And what he's saying is there's people that won't love him. They'll love these things instead of him. They will just sit there and enjoy the yogurt and enjoy the ice cream and enjoy the sports. And this is why you don't have us just enjoying food. We have gluttony, right? This is why he can't, we can't just enjoy wine. We have alcoholism. This is why we can't enjoy Sex, we have pornography. And we can't look to him and saying, God, you've given me this wonderful gift so that I could see you as good. No, we worship that thing that he's given us rather than looking at him. And this is idolatry, right? This is that exchange that we consistently fight with, that we love this thing more than we love God. And he's saying, listen, I have shown my love to Everyone, by my common grace, by the things that I've created, that I have given them, and they're without excuse. That when they enjoy the things that I've given them, they should look to their creator and say, he's so good. He's so good. So there are people that are walking this earth, and there are people probably in this room that are enjoying God's love, his common grace, the air that you're breathing, is because God has put it there, that Christ has put it there, the creator of all things. 
the air that you're breathing, he's given it to you because he's good. And we will worship the things that he's given us and not him. And that's the tragedy, is it not? John three nineteen, And this is judgment, that the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. So they'll openly reject the light of God. And so to those who are elect for the foundation of the world that the Spirit is working on, the hearts of those who will come and who will worship, when they are confronted with the light of Christ, they will love it. It will become a light, if they're in the darkness, it will become a light of a rescue mission. My Father has come to rescue me and bring me out of the darkness. And I, I can't stay here. This is not my home. This world is not my home. So I'm obviously going to worship and bow down to my loving Father who's come to rescue me and, as the language of Scripture, adopt me and call me, as John says, his children. And so this light that shines over the darkness, when his children see that light, they love it and they long for it. And they want to be in their father's arms. But here's the tragedy. There will be people who are in the darkness that they may see this light of this rescue mission of Christ of God sending his perfect, beautiful son that this would be the light that he shows to all the world. There will be people in the darkness when they look up and they see that light, they will hate it. And they will squint their eyes and say, I want to stay in the darkness. I want to reject that truth. And I, I hate that truth. I hate that light. I don't want to be rescued. I want to stay dead. I want to stay dead. So I've even heard people say this, and people use this language that God adopting us is, or God predestining us is like rape. Let me just pose this. You are dead in your sins. You are lost in the darkness. When God displays his beautiful son, he does so in the form of light in darkness. And when we see the light and he rescues us, how in the world do we condense that down to rape? It's rescuing you. If you're dead, you're dead. You're not alive. If he makes you alive through the, his beautiful, perfect son, that is his love for you. You get that? You get that? That's God showing his love for you. That when you were in the darkness, when you were dead in your sins and dead in your trespasses and you're hopeless without him and you're in this world who is, that is always in flux, always in motion, always changing and you have this unmoved mover who comes into human history and shows you and displays his beautiful love you're wrapped up in it and you want to know him and you want to be in your father's arms. And it's beautiful. It's the gospel. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we may be, should become 
holy and blameless before him. In, what's the word? In love. He predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Look at John 12. John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of men, but of God. So how are we born again? God. How are we born again? Christ, who is the light of the world, who comes into the darkness as a rescue mission, he saves us out of his love. So the story of us being adopted, chosen children of God that he rescues out of his love, the story is really not about us. It's about the love the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father that he would go through with this obedience to his Father. That he would become obedient as the language of Scripture uses. Paul says this, to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this rescue mission that he saves his adopted children is about the love that he has for his father. The son has for his father. And so when we're confronted with that truth, we become adopted by the same father. And he becomes our father, so we worship him. And we're not slaves to our sin anymore. We're slaves to righteousness, which is a blessing that we get to love and worship. And we will worship him because he takes out the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, a heart that loves him and a heart that desires him. So if you're a believer in Christ, if you are adopted by him and you've repented of your sins and you believe in his name and you consistently walk in repentance, he will consistently work in you and complete until the day uh, of, of his second coming when he comes again. He's going to finish the work that he started in us because he's a good father. He's a good dad. So what a blessing it is to be adopted by the son who loves his father or by the father who loves his son so much that he would display him to all the world that every, every nation will cry out to his name and worship his name alone. So if anything, what this stirs in me is a heart to proclaim the good news of the son. To, to proclaim the good news to everyone. We don't know who the adopted are going to be. We don't know, but we proclaim it to everyone because it's the light of this rescue mission in this dark world. We know that some are going to hate it. Actually, we know that more are going to hate it, unfortunately. But we know that many love it and they will respond to it because of what God is doing and working. So for me, when I look at the incarnation of Christ, all I want to do is share the good news of our saving Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I hope that you would do the same. Let's pray.